John chapter 15, verse number 9, Jesus is speaking to the disciples in the night before the day of his crucifixion. He says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Watch this. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. John 15 is an amazing chapter. Um, I encourage you to go back and read the first eight verses and then read the verses that follow. But when we're beginning a series on intimacy, I thought the best thing that I could do is not explain how to become intimate with the Lord in five uh, back-to-back steps, Or not give you a long list of things that you better do if you ever hope to have intimacy with the Lord. I really wanted to go to the words of Jesus Christ and I wanted to kind of research and find where does he speak most intimately with his disciples. And although I would say to you that I think the most picturesque expression of the intimacy that Christians have with God, or or more specifically with Jesus... That, that best picture is in the bridal paradigm. It is in that revelation of Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride and the intimacy that comes forth in that oneness uh, spiritually just as there is intimacy in the physical in a marriage. I think that's the best example. But that is one that so many of us are so familiar with and I just believe that not enough of us are familiar with something that I would consider just right underneath the bridal paradigm. What is it? Friendship with God. Now, if I ask the room right now, how many of you believe that God loves you, most of you would raise your hand. But if I said, how many of you believe God likes you, not as many hands would go up. There's something within us that is much more comfortable with the distant God of authority than we are with the intimate God of friendship. And I believe that the heartbeat of Jesus Christ is that he came, he died, he rose and ascended so that we wouldn't have to pick between those two things, that we could bow before his authority while we enjoy his friendship. So let's talk about it a little bit tonight. Now, let me give you a couple of of verses that are not associated or not in our our text that we read today. Because when we're talking about being a friend of God, there's really only one person in all of the Bible to whom it is specifically said, at least in the Old Testament, that he was a friend of God. Somebody tell me who that one individual is. 
It's Abraham. So let me give you a couple of verses from James chapter 2, verse 23. James is writing and he says, The scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. God called Abraham his friend. Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, and of course that's the descendants of Abraham, you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Now, we could give an Abraham a golf clap all day long. Good for Abraham. What does that have to do with us? Well, look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, my friends, you may not be um, in your DNA Hebrew or Jewish, but you are connected to Abraham. You are the sons and the daughters of Abraham. Those of you that are in Jesus Christ, you're the sons and the daughters. You're the descendants of Abraham's faith. Abraham believed he was counted righteous. When you believed on Jesus Christ, God counted you righteous. You say, well, Jeff, I've done a lot of rotten things. Well, did you put them under the blood when you believed? Did you bring all your baggage to Jesus, all your crimes, all your immorality, all of your heinousness, all of your self-centeredness, all of the things, all of your failures, did you bring them to Jesus? If you brought them to Jesus and you release them to Jesus, they're gone. They're expunged. There is no condemnation to those of us that are in Christ Jesus. And so we have been justified like Abraham is. But listen, this is what I'm getting at. We say amen all day to that, but we really seem to hesitate when we are considering, can we step into that other thing that's said about Abraham, friendship with God? What does it even mean? What does it mean to have an intimacy with the Lord that is so authentic that he looks at you and says, she's my friend. He's my friend. So let's let some of the text talk to us about these elements of intimacy. And the reason why I'm doing this, listen, I'm, I'm not on a covert mission. This is an overt mission. I want you to see what, what intimacy looks like and I want you to want it more than you want anything else. I want us as followers of Jesus Christ to be so dissatisfied with a once a week Sunday experience lifestyle that we cannot bear to wake up on Monday and live that day at any less of a level of intimacy than we experience corporately on Sunday. I want us to be dissatisfied with the average status quo Christian existence in Bible Belt America. And I think the reason why I want us to be satisfied is not because I'm a rebel, because it falls so beneath what Jesus has provided. So let's look at it. I've said that nine times. Now we're actually going to look at it. Here we go. First of all, I want us to see that intimacy is a place of rest. We'll start out in low gear and move a little further. Jesus says this in verses 9 and 10. Watch this. We're going to teach through this. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he gives a command. Abide in my love. And then he gives an unpacking of that command. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments 
and abide in his love. Now, I love the way that Jesus approaches this. Because anytime you and I, especially in our day, when we hear obey, our radars go off. Because so many of our lives were kind of temporarily poisoned by the toxicity of legalism and high-demand Christianity and uber-performance. If God's going to love you, you better uptick at nine levels by the weekend or you're going to risk being out of favor with God. And so many of our lives have been touched by that. So when we hear the word obey, we might have a knee-jerk reaction and say, oh, talking about obedience. We're not under the law. Jesus has paid it all. It's all grace. We don't have to think about obedience. Well, you can believe that, but you can't biblically believe that. Our tendency is this, though. When we hear obedience, we want to put our guard up because all of us know that we're not perfectly obedient. Would anybody like to stand up and declare this morning that you are perfectly obedient all the time? Good. We don't have to lay hands and deliver, deliver you this morning. So the reality is, is none of us are, but Jesus is calling us into this intimacy, into this rest. But look at what he does. He says two things. He, he, he highlights our obedience to him and our abiding in his love. He connects it with the way he interacted with the Father. How he interacted with the Father was that he always did those things that pleased the Father. Twice, God called from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus lived to do the will of the Father, the will of the Father that sent him. That was the meat that Jesus considered essential to his daily life. Now, let me ask you this. Did you ever see Jesus fearing what would happen if he disobeyed the Father? Did you ever see him anxious about, I got to obey, I got to obey, I got to obey? Did you ever see Jesus just trying to churn it out in the flesh and, and, the, and being as the Son of Man, churn out obedience? No, the key is this. He was so abiding in oneness with the Father that obedience was the natural outflow. The only time you ever see any hint, and i got to be careful here lest I step off into heresy, but the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's the only time you see it. When Jesus is about to be made sin, and the Father is about to pour out the cup of wrath. Jesus said this, If there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But if not, I will do your will. The rest of his life was seamless. And even in that moment, though it was a struggle, even in that moment, he's abiding. Why? Well, because he knew the Father loved him. He knew that God the Father loves God the Son. And Jesus actually connects that point with our ability to abide in Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, as the Father loves me in the same way I love you. It is meant for us not to toil, not to obey as, as those that are afraid of the consequences if they disobey. Lots of people obey God. They keep the rules. They toe the line. They do everything like they're supposed to do, not because they are thrilled and love to please him, because they have been trained by religion that here come the consequences if you break out of line. So it is a fear-based obedience that is not, has nothing to do with abiding in Jesus. It is no different than obeying the traffic cop. Like, I'm just going to get real with you. Like, you're, you're, it's 50 on 20 out in front of the church, and you're doing 60. But by amazing discernment, you see right over there on Russell Road a speed trap. Now, you don't slow down to 50 because you love that cop. 
You slow down to 50 because you see him and you don't want him to see you disobeying the law. It's fear-based obedience. Unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people are relating to God and the church. That they don't believe that what he offers us is for our own good. So instead of trusting and abiding, what does it mean to abide? What does that mean? Because Jesus gives a command here. He tells all of his followers, abide in my love. When we think of abiding, we're thinking about this. We're cooperating with God in order to welcome him, to fill our minds with himself, to own and direct our wills, and to transform our desires. It is an alignment issue that we come and bring ourselves by faith into alignment and we get centered in him and then we want to stay there. We want to breathe and live and move in rhythm with the Almighty. And we learn how to do that. And so there are moments clearly where we step out of line, but we don't stay out of line. We come back and we abide and we get back in that rhythm with him. It literally is an aligning ourselves with the words, the ways, and the works of Jesus. Nothing else satisfies the Christian soul. Any other way to live causes us not to abide in him. The word abide literally tells us to to live in Jesus. We enter in by faith to remain in Jesus. And that is that issue of obedience that Jesus himself talks about. And then we continue in Jesus. Abiding is not a once in a moment thing that happens. It is the characteristic of the entire Christian life. We are constantly called to cooperate with God in abiding in the love of God. Now, does it mean when we disobey, he stops loving us? Of course not. Because while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He loved you when you never gave him a second thought. And so the, the reality is, is that he doesn't stop loving you. you. You need to hear me on this. Some need to hear this. Especially if you grew up in a home that was conditioned, that love was conditioned upon your performance or obedience. And if you ever stepped out of performance or obedience, you felt the loss of love. That's not God the Father. That was a mom or a dad probably trying to do their best but not succeeding with you. There is this place where his love pours out its benefits. Love, the love of God may be broad, but the benefits of that love only fall in the place of abiding and obedience. And so if I step out of that place, it's not that I've stepped out of his love, but there is a practical benefit to being abiding and remaining in his love because that is the union. That is the sense of oneness with him. And if I step away from that, then I'm going to experience a number of different consequences for that. And so what we do is we learn to remain in unity because that's the best place. He's not squashing our lives when he calls us to obey. Well, let's go a little bit further. When we're resting and abiding in that oneness, when we are centered in his love for us, that's what got the whole thing started. We love him because what? He first loved us. So he chooses the process and initiates it, and we just stay in cooperation with that, and we learn. That's actually a learned behavior in the Christian life. We learn both the pros and the cons. We learn how to do it, but ultimately, one of the things that I'm trying to highlight here is that abiding intimacy with God is a place of rest. It is the opposite of religion. Religious people have no rest in their soul. They don't. I'm not being ugly here. That there, there's no reason for them to have rest. Why? Because it all depends on them. You're never finished. It's never good enough. Some, some religious people live under the banner. It's an ugly, ripped up, matted, moldy banner called enough. 
They live under that. I'm not, I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I don't get up early enough. I don't pray enough. I don't witness enough. I don't give enough. I don't serve enough. Blah, blah. It just goes on and on. And so what they do is they try to do better. Let me just do better. Let me turn it up a notch. But then when you go up a notch in religion, all that happens is enough just goes up a notch too. And so you're always underneath that smothering tarp of not quite enough but abiding in Jesus is this he loves me he loved me at my worst he has blessed me he has saved me he has forgiven me he is patient with me hallelujah he hasn't given up on me I have messed up but when I repent and forsake he's right there and I'm just gonna abide in his love and there's something that happens to that soul that really begins to believe that when she exchanges her religion for his rest a whole new dynamic hits her life and that's what the Lord's calling us to. But go a little further. Go into verse 11 with me. Intimacy is also a place of joyfulness. These things, Jesus said, I've spoken to you. Going all the way back to chapter 13 when he began this discourse. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and consequently your joy may be full. You know, when, when we think of Jesus and even prophesied in Isaiah, he's the man of sorrows, right? We only see, I think, two times in the New Testament where the Bible expressly says Jesus was filled with joy. And there was a moment when God the Father was revealing the, the identity of Jesus to simple people. And the religious elites couldn't receive Jesus. They stumbled over Jesus. They just rejected him. But Jesus um, rejoiced. I think it was Luke chapter 10. He rejoiced that God the Father had opened the minds of simple people who were receiving him. And the Bible says he, he rejoiced exceedingly in his spirit. But for the most time in his earthly life, we don't see clearly painted on the scripture, uh, on the pages of scripture, the joy of Jesus. But he's talking about it here. So just because we don't have it, uh, you know, illustrated in, in various narratives in the scripture, you have to understand that Jesus said, I am inviting you into an intimacy, the result of which is my joy is going to be imparted to you. And when that happens, here's what, it's just a beautiful picture. He says, when I give you some of my joy, your joy tank is going to be full. He says, I want to give you my joy, and it's going to immediately fill up your joy tank. We were uh, in the prayer room earlier this morning, the one here at 9 a.m., and there was so much good prayer, and there's a lot of uh, just interceding, warfare interceding in there. A few different prophetic words were given, but one of the things the Lord just showed me is, Jeff, right now, like today is where I, I, I believed he was talking about, there are people, and I got these two words, and I'm not a car guy, and I'm definitely not a NASCAR guy, um, but he said there's low tread and low fuel in the tanks today. That some were riding on low tread, and some were riding on fumes. And I thought to myself, as, as we entered into worship, you know, when we come together, there are so many different things we can do. We can spend two hours teaching systematic theology. We could do that. Nothing wrong with systematic theology. We could intercede for two hours. 
We could worship and sing and praise and shout and dance for two hours. We could do evangelism. Well, there's so many things we could do. We could enter into mercy ministry and comfort the weak and the hurting. We could do that. All of those things have their place in the kingdom of God. But when it comes to this aspect of corporate worship, one of the things that I love about what God's doing in this house is that no matter what else he does on a Sunday, there are moments where the joy of heaven is released into the room. Where, where people rise above their bank account. They rise above their Monday morning that's coming. They rise above the fact that they do literally have low treads and no gas in the tank sitting out there in the parking lot. And, and they, they rise above it. What happens? The Lord just, it's like we're coming in. The Lord just says, hey, let me hold that bag for you. Let me take that baggage from you. Hey, I got it. Let me take all that weight off of you. Do you, want, you don't mind if I just take that. And I just want you to go in there, and I want you to enter into intimacy with me, and I want my joy to become your joy. And it doesn't mean we pretend like we don't have problems. It just means our problems get reoriented when we are abiding in him, we're experiencing intimacy, and we get to taste some of his joy. I, I'll, I'll just say this. I'm not trying to pick or poke. I... I just want you to know, heaven's going to be really, really joyful. I mean, like, it's going to blow your mind, and you'll have a glorified mind. It's going to, boom, it's going to blow your glorified mind when you get there. And we're not going to be sitting there with pens and paper taking notes. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 Lord, more Lord. <laughs> Americans are going to be blown away when they get up there and they see some African worship. And they see some Brazilian worship. And they see some Korean intercession and praise, and, and Americans are like, hey, is this allowed? Is that, God's like, yeah, they've been doing it their whole existence. The, the point being is this, I don't want to wait until I get there for the joy plug to get removed and let it flow. It's, it's not even about being an introvert or an extrovert. Listen, um, we're, we're kind of into the Myers-Briggs stuff, and my kids were arguing with me the other day because I test as an ESTJ, and my kids are like, uh-uh. You're an ISTJ. And I, I want to be an E because I want to be an extrovert. And they're like, Dad, uh, you're, you're an introvert. You prefer to re refuel alone. And you, you don't draw energy off of crowds. When you get done with a crowd, you want to go and hide somewhere. So I was protesting, and I started thinking about it. I was like, I don't care if I'm an E or an I. I'm redeemed, hallelujah. I'm saved. I'm set free. I'm bigger than my Myers-Briggs letters, Hallelujah. And Jesus is just worthy of our joy. Now listen, if you're missing joy, we're not asking you to work it up. You don't get intimacy by faking joy. You get joy by pursuing intimacy. And I'm going to tell you something. Joy is probably the single joy and love or the two, the two double factors that will awaken our, our, our environment, awaken our neighbors, awaken our family, awaken our schoolmates, awaken our coworkers. When they see the joy and the love that pours off of us, they're going to know that that's not a religious person. That's somebody that apparently has been walking with this one called Jesus. Religion uh, looks like lemon juice. Intimacy, forgive me, looks like champagne. Amen celebrational raise a toast to the king of kings and the lord of lords i just lost half of you with that analogy <laughs> listen a, a consistent joy evidences a healthy intimacy with christ um I, I i love my wife obviously and she models a lot of things to me but she's probably got tenfold of the joy that i do and 
she's got probably more struggles than I do. And yet she operates in this high capacity of joy. And so when I watch her and it's modeled and I see that, I'm like, Lord, what is that? And it's the same answer every time. Jeff, you're really busy, but Amy slows down and she's really blessed. And there's no condemnation in it. He's just speaking truth to me. By the way, he doesn't change the way he operates to suit me or to suit you. So don't, don't just say, well, joy's, I can live without joy. Well, Jesus said, I want to give you my joy. He says, when I give you my joy, your joy is going to burst. It's going to come out. Intimacy is a place of rest, and it's a place of joyfulness. But it's also a place of selflessness. This is where we're going to get practical. This is really important, especially to a local assembly that is rooted in night and day worship and prayer. Let me just let the text speak. I'm going to give you verse 12 and verse 13, then I'm going to add verse 17. Jesus says this. Now watch. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another like I've loved you, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then in verse 17, he says, these things I'm commanding you so that you will love one another. When we're talking about intimacy and we're talking about pursuing the Lord, and we're talking about doing whatever it takes to align ourselves with him and to abide in him. And a lot of that sounds like really mystical and really just kind of like almost floaty a little bit. But I love what the Lord does here. He's describing what he's about to call in a moment friendship with him, and he's describing discipleship with him. And remember, this is the last elongated message he gives to those disciples prior to his crucifixion. Judas is about to get out of the room. Matter of fact, he's actually already gone out of the room, if I'm not mistaken, and going to betray Jesus. So it's just hours before the crucifixion. And, and we need to recognize that a person's dying words are some of the most important they'll share. And so Jesus is saying this place of intimacy is a place of selflessness. He says, I've commanded you to do something. Chapter number 13, verse number 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. He even adds this, it's your love for each other, Christians, that's going to inform the whole world that you belong to me. And so when he's talking about intimacy, our minds can automatically go to this just one-on-one intersection with him, and obviously that's a part of it. I I don't think we can have intimacy with the Lord that exceeds our prayer life. I don't. You can disagree with me if you want. That's my personal opinion. I think I'm as intimate with the Lord as my communication with the Lord, whether it's sitting or kneeling, whether it's in the prayer room on Collins Hill, whether it's here, whether it's in my office or in my truck, whatever. The communication factor between God and his children, that's kind of the incubator of intimacy. And and if we're not in those moments, then intimacy is not going to happen. But let me tell you the other side of the coin. Lord, help me to say this right. I want to honor him and I want to help people. You can go after intimacy to the extent to where you actually can become aloof from people. You You can take the supposed spiritual high ground and be like, I can't serve today. I've got to pray. I've got to receive the word. I I, I can't serve. I need to be in the place where I'm gaining instruction so I can't serve or I can't help somebody or I can't have dinner with somebody or I can't go out to lunch because after all, I've got my Bible. I've got my Strong's Concordance. I've got Logos on my computer. I've got a worship set going on for six hours at the prayer room and I'm just going to be intimate with the Lord. 
we're laughing, but I'm going to tell you something. If you're not careful, you can substitute what Jesus is talking about for that kind of me and God only silo. That's not what the Lord is talking about here. Look what we're finding, that the result of intimacy is going to be a desire to, to live out what he commands. And here's the commandment. There's, it's, there's two great commandments. First commandment first, intimacy. Love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's intimacy. Go hard after God because he goes hard after you. And it's a beautiful collision of love and intimacy. It's awesome. The second one's right next to it. What is it? Love everybody else. Love your neighbor. And a lot of people can potentially say, I'm going to go so hard after the first commandment because after all, it's the first commandment. And they leave a place of negligence in the second commandment. And we have to come to that, 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 that moment in life where intimacy is also providing a discernment to know if we're over-spiritualizing intimacy to the neglect of serving others, loving others, even to the extent, Jesus said, of laying down our lives for one another. We all know John 3.16, but what about 1 John 3.16? Do you know 1 John 3.16? We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so love and intimacy can never be prostituted by you sequestering yourself with God and God alone and people have to live with it or lump it. That's not intimacy. That's hiding. That's fear. Now, here's what I believe. If we're actually experiencing intimacy in those moments where we're going after the Lord and we're resting in him and we're abiding in him and we're growing in him and we're hearing from him, I'll talk about that in just a moment, then, then the natural outflow of that is we're going to be people-oriented. It doesn't mean we're, you know, Mr. or Mrs. cool personality and we're outgoing, but it just means this, we're alert. We're looking for opportunities. We're listening. Who's the father going to point me to today? The, the reason why there was a, a word given this morning about a person with a, a lesion in their back is because there had been intimacy prior to that word being received. Those things don't typically just fall out of pocket and land on somebody. So, it's one thing to say, hallelujah, I got a word. It's another thing to give that word, to risk it being wrong, coming off looking like, you know, a nonprofit. <laughs> There's a lot of pride in churches, man. Well, I got a word today, I just didn't release it. Well, then you didn't get a real word. Because uh, when you get a word, you release the word. So my point being is this, those things are born from intimacy and it's not enough to say, I got a word and go home and you never gave the word and the person that needed the word didn't get benefited by the word you didn't give. So Jesus says, I want you to love one another and I want you to go to the extent that you love one another just like I've loved you. That's where it gets tenacious right there. Have you thought about this week about how Jesus loves you? I just took a moment this morning I just wrote down a few words Jesus loves me proactively that means when I'm not in the mood to love him yeah that happens y'all look so pious <laughs> well I never what? Come on, <laughs> when Taylor and I don't have the mood to love the Lord <laughs> he still loves me proactively what does that mean 
He doesn't let me be comfortable not loving him with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. He doesn't beat me. He doesn't take me by the collar and demand love. He just overloves me. He just makes it so good and sloshy that I'm like, all right, you got me. I love you. You're awesome. It's just the way he rolls. So it's proactive love. Do we love others that proactively? Jesus says, I want you to love others like I love you, Jeff. He loves me patiently, real patiently. And he says, I want you to go and love mm -hmm, that person just like I love you. I'm like, Lord, I'd like to love them from over here. How about while they're over there, I just love them from over here. And he says, no, go love them and love them patiently. Lord, they're, they're aggravating. They're discouraging. Uh, they don't know how to finish a sentence, and it goes on and on and on and on. They call me when they should text. <laughs> Y'all are all thinking about people he's telling you to love patiently. Persistently. He loves me persistently. In times where I've failed, in times where I've, I'm, an, I'm an idiot. He just keeps coming back. He's like, no, I, my love for you is an overarching love. I'm just going to keep coming after you. And by the way, he loves me practically and provisionally. It means he loves me enough to take care of my needs. And then he tells me, Jeff, go love people like that. Love them proactively and persistently and patiently and provisionally. Just go love them like that. And you know what? I'm going to confess something. If I don't have intimacy with him, I can't do that. I can't. I can fake it, but eventually the tank goes empty. It is only through intimacy with the Lord that we not only can abide in his love, but that because we abide in his love, we're able to love others. Let me give you this next to last thing, and it's the point I've been trying to work to, and I'm just about out of time. Intimacy is also a place of friendship. This is really what I wanted to get us to. I don't know if I'll get to verse 16 or not, maybe. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I, I have to work at this. We all bring our own unique baggage into our relationship with Jesus. Mine, probably because of um, a very rebellious past prior to my conversion, um, I knew the Lord had judicially pardoned me. Forensically, I was his. Theologically, I had been translated from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. I got all of that. Theologically, no problem. But a few years into my journey with Jesus, I'd get around some people that just were so peaceful and calm. My friend John Milesen sitting back there, and John just exudes that stuff. And I met John when I was 30, maybe even 29. And the first time I met him, and he's got maybe two or three years on me. I don't know how many, but he's got a few. And I remember thinking, this, this older guy has something I don't have. And I want that. I want that in my life. And then I started meeting other people, and I realized it wasn't that they were casual. They were actually intensely committed Christians. They loved the Lord in some ways probably more than I did, but they walked with a spiritual lightness. 
they weren't obsessive. They weren't compulsive. They didn't have to have it just so. Now, this was going back years and years when I started seeing this, and I started realizing something that I would now define as this. They understood, whether theologically or just inherently, they understood the friendship of the Lord. They were able to exhale in the presence of the Almighty. They were able to rest, release, receive. And it wasn't complicated. It wasn't something that they felt had to be done with just the right gear in the right place, turning at the right time. But it was so much of a dynamic of relationship that the more I was around it, I went through a phase where I was, I was wanting to denounce it. Because it actually, I was very religious back then. I was very religious. I, w- I was coming out of legalism. I thought I was out, but man, I was still in it. And, and I was seeing this and I'm thinking, well, they just don't take discipleship seriously. Because the root word of discipleship is discipline. Bum, bum, bum. You know, that was my, my caveat. I just happened to be kind of a miserable Christian during those years. And meanwhile, I'm looking at them laughing and not sweating it. Just enjoying Jesus. Say, Jeff, why are you telling us this? Well, because that's where some of you are living right now. Some of you are there. And you're offended or struggle. Maybe that's a more appropriate word. You struggle with the ease with which other Christians seem to just abide and not obsess and enjoy and not stress. And, And there's some little component. It's that... We all have a little stubborn Pharisee running around in our heart that won't die. There may only be one, but he's quick and you just, he's trying to stop. Grab his robe and he slips out of it and he's got another robe on. You're like, man, how does this Pharisee in me die? Well, he has to be crucified. Because Pharisees, you you don't enter enter into agreement with the the Pharisee that runs around in your heart. That little Pharisee's got to be crucified. So what did the Lord do? He just let me get around enough people that really walked in friendship with the Lord. So when when we're talking about this, I'm going to ask you this. How you identify yourself in your relationship with the Lord determines all of the outflow from that relationship. Now, my favorite identifier is this. I'm a son. I'm a son. We have the, the standing of sonship, even the daughters of God. We have the standing of sonship. We are children of God. I also believe the Bible is very clear here. Jesus is not contradicting himself. We are the servants of God. But that's not our primary identifier. I think sons is the primary identifier in our relationship with the Lord. Servants is not. We're also soldiers because we're fighting the good fight. We're warring against hell. We're reclaiming surrendered ground for the glory of the king who's going to step back into this atmosphere and rule on this planet. And so we are soldiers right now. We're also, as I've mentioned earlier, the bride. Collectively, we are the family. Uh, Outwardly, we're ambassadors. So we've got all these different titles on us. But Jesus here just makes a distinction. He actually compares when he goes, I'm not going to call you servants anymore. I'm going to call you friends. And then he tells them why. He says, because the servant doesn't really know what all the master's doing. He said, but I have imparted to you all that the father has told me. Think about this. Jesus 
indicates that friendship with God means that you have a higher level of communication imparted to you. Let me give you the paradigm. A servant will obey his master. The master can be planning a party, having a party. He knows every guest. Let's go, going back 2,000 years ago in Roman culture, he's going to have 200 people at this party. It's going to take this amount of food. And all he says to the servant is, have all the food on the table and these placements and have it done by this time. And the servant obeys. Jesus said, that's not how I want you and me to be. Here's what I want to tell you. Hey, sit down for a second. I'm going to throw a banquet. I'm going to tell you whom I'm inviting. I'm going to invite this one because of this. Oh, man, that was great. I'm going to invite this one because of this. I'm going to tell you, listen, these people love this type of food, and I want you to prepare it, and this is going to be so good, and, I, and, and we're going to have this kind of conversation at the table, and I want you to be in the room, and I, I just want you to be aware of why I'm doing what I'm doing, and I'm going to let you have a part in it. That's the difference between a friend and a servant. See, the Lord doesn't just send you out as a number. Go out and do this for me. I'm glorious, you're not. Serve me. That's not the heart of the Father. It's not the heart of the Lord. The Lord actually indicates in these verses that part of friendship with him is you're going to hear his whispers. You're going to hear his voice on an intimate level. He's going to share things with you as his friend that those that want to relate to him only as his servant will never get to hear. Why? Because it's a proximity issue. You see, a friend can get right up there with you. A servant stands at a distance waiting for the next order. A friend is relating. A servant is only obeying. A, a friend is entering into the conversation, not just receiving it in silence. And Jesus says that. I think one of the things that's going to happen on, on, on this coming revival, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up because I just probably need to finish, but with the destruction of religion, and I mean that, I'm sorry if that sounds type A, but religion is, in my opinion, if not the predominant, one of the most predominant foes against the glory of God in the Bible Belt. I think religion does way more than hedonism. Religion, religion comes against the things of God far more destructively than immorality. Because religion poses as God. Immorality says, I'm against God. Religion says, I am God. And when religion falls, friendship with Jesus is going to hit the church, not in a way that produces cavalier flippancy or irreverency. True friendship with Jesus is all about intimacy. We will hear his voice. He says this in verse 16, and I'm, I'm just going to say it. I'm not going to preach it. This last point is intimacy is a place of breakthrough. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That means it's going to last. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. He may give it to you. 
Friendship with the Lord results in us hearing the whispers of his heart. Psalm 25, 14 says that the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And that is an Old Testament framework, a phraseology that means those who reverence him, those who abide in him. That same psalm, Psalm 25, 14, in other translations says the friendship of the Lord is with the friendship and the secret. They go hand in hand. That the Lord doesn't just want you to be lost in the crowd. He doesn't want you just, you know, hearing general population information. But that you are so precious to him that he doesn't even want you just to be a really, really good servant. That's important. We're not diminishing that. But there's something more. There's something else he's offering us that in this body we're going to press in for unapologetically, probably awkwardly at times, not always with fluidity, seamlessly, executing on every single uh, pivot point. But we want to say this, Jesus, if you told those disciples that their primary position with you was not that of a servant who salutes, just snaps off a salute, but as a friend with whom you share your heart, then Jesus, I want that too. He's got that for you. And I'm going to tell you, if you'll press into that, and I'll press into that, the whole dynamic of our walk with Jesus Christ will change from place to place, faith to faith, image to image. We will grow in ways that we couldn't have ever grown before if all we were doing is trying to perfect servanthood. Let's perfect friendship. Let's see what happens. We stand to your feet this morning. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. If you, if you absolutely have to leave, go ahead and leave. So this morning, I want to invite some of you to come out of, of an empty religion and step into a vibrant beginning of a relationship with God. Some of you are here today and you've done church. I really sense that there are some in the room that had given up on all things church and Christian a long time ago. And some reason you find yourself here today and the Lord's meeting you with this message. It's because he's always wanted friendship with you for your benefit. And so it's not an accident that you're here. But listen, the way that we enter into that beginnings of friendship with God is by acknowledging that in all actuality, we were born as enemies of God because of our sin and our rebellion. But don't let that, that need for confession dissuade you. Because it's that confession that serves as the launch pad. It's the first expression of your faith where you say, I know I'm a sinner, but I also know that you're a savior, the savior. And so Lord, I believe that I can bring my sin to you and you will forgive me. And Lord, I wanna surrender to you right now. I wanna bring my whole life, past, present, and future. And I want to release myself to you, Jesus. You may not even know exactly how to do that. I didn't. God saved me, and all I prayed was, Lord, I'm done running from you. You can kill me, or you can save me. That was my prayer. And he transformed my life beginning that day, and he's still transforming it today. If you, have, if you, if you do not know right now 
that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, if you can't pinpoint a time where you, you know you intentionally surrendered yourself to him, I want to invite you to do that right now. Matter of fact, right there where you stand, just to take a moment and be honest with him and say, yeah, I failed, I've sinned, I've rebelled. I've broken more of the commandments than I know. Or, or this, it might be, no, I've trusted in my own righteousness. I've trusted in my morality. I've trusted in my goodness. I've compared myself to, other, myself to others and come off feeling scot-free. But now in this moment, you realize, yeah, but when I compare myself with Jesus, I've got nowhere to hide. Hide in him. Hide in him. Place your faith in the Son of God right now. If you want help with that in a moment, when they begin to sing, I just want you to come forward. We'll have some folks that are down here to pray and just say, I'm, I want to know more about surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, what an awesome invitation from the Lord. He says, I call you my friend. And embedded in that is, now I want you to start living that way as my friend. Not a fearful slave, but my friend. Not as a zealous ambassador primarily, but my friend, a son of God, a daughter of God, who is my friend. So Father, in Jesus' name, now, Lord, impact our hearts with this truth. Elevate our hunger. We don't want Sunday religion. We don't want to just go vertical with you while we remain disengaged from people. We don't want, Lord, moral obedience without missional obedience. Lord, change our hearts. We present them before you right now. Make us your friends. We want to be your friends. We want to be a friend to you. We want to hear your whispers. We want to know what you're doing. We want a place, Lord, of intimacy at the table where you share the secrets of the Father with us. We come boldly. You chose us. You appointed us that we would bear much fruit. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask, make us a friend of God in his name. Amen.